1: Russia Putin Russia's russia. russia Russia, russia Russian 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 Russians Russians Russian Russians Russian Russian Rus Russian Russian russia Russian
2: andy crawl to freedom Russian. through 500 russia. yards of shit-smelling russia. foulness I can't even imagine Russian against me I just don't want to
1: Russian government the Russians, Vladimir Putin Russia. Vladimir Putin Russia. Putin in Russia.
2: 500 yards. That's the length
3: of 5 football fields. Just shy of half a mile. Russian, Russian, Russian,
1: Russian. Russian rush against us. The Russians, Russian.
2: It always makes me laugh. Crawl through a river of shit and came out clean on the other side. Internet
4: founder Grant Glenn Greenwald was when last we checked, a liberal probably wouldn't vote for Trump at gunpoint. He has just
2: been vindicated.
4: You, a liberal, were denounced as a Russian
2: agent by other liberals. What was that like? I mean, it was exactly what you would expect it to be.
5: Congratulations for doing your job as you're supposed to be doing it. I appreciate it. Good to see you. Thanks,
2: Tucker.
4: This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 88 of Intercepted.
3: This American carnage stops right here and Stops right
4: now. On January 20th, 2017, Donald J. Trump took power as president of the United States. He had openly campaigned on carnage. He ran for president promising to give the rich more, to bring back torture, to wage a war against immigrants, and to build his wall. He was gleeful in pledging to make America's healthcare system even worse. He promised to bring back torture, to fill Guantanamo back up, to kill the families of suspected terrorists. He said he would ban Muslims from entering the United States. He encouraged police to be more brutal, has given aid and comfort to Nazis and white supremacists. He openly promised to wage war against women and their bodies, to pummel the environment, to benefit the already ultra-rich. He is corrupt to the bone, has been for a very long time, and he's proud of it. He brought into his inner circle a dangerous cabal of neo-fascists, white supremacists, and more recently, neo-conservatives. It
6: is among the worst violators of the UN Charter and UN Security
4: Council resolutions. Perhaps indeed the worst violator. It is truly an outlaw regime. If you cross us our allies or our partners, if you harm our citizens, if you continue to lie, cheat and deceive, yes, there will indeed be hell to pay. And on Russia, for all the talk of Russia collusion and Trump being an asset, Donald Trump has dramatically ratcheted up official hostilities with Russia. Look at the ongoing attempted coup against a key Russian ally in Venezuela. The Trump administration's arming of Ukrainian forces with lethal aid, Trump's open threats to massively retaliate against Moscow if they interfered with Trump's bombing of Russian ally Bashar al-Assad, Trump hectored Angela Merkel and Germany over their purchase of natural gas from Russia. Trump has imposed sanctions, expelled diplomats, on and on. Trump has been pretty damn hawkish on Russia despite all the absolutely questionable behavior and constant lies about his discussions with russian figures or people attached to the kremlin and his public comments about putin and his meetings without notes but as commander-in-chief donald trump has been as hawkish if not more so on some issues than his predecessors
0: i don't have a bad personal relationship with putin when we have conversations
4: um they're candid they're blunt um Oftentimes they're constructive. And now we come to this whole RussiaGate matter. We do not yet have Robert Mueller's report. And Attorney General William Barr is a shady character. He was a key player in covering up the Iran Contra scandal and getting pardons for some of the key criminals involved with it. But it would be an unthinkably brazen move, even within Trump world, for William Barr to just whole cloth. Misquote Robert Mueller when he says that Mueller determined that there was no collusion, no criminal activity by Trump and Russia to interfere in the 2016 elections. So now we have this saga dragging on and the Democratic chairs of several key House committees seem intent on continuing this investigation regardless of what the Mueller report says. They can't indict the president. Uh,
3: that's their policy. And therefore, there could be overwhelming evidence on the obstruction issue, and I don't know that that's the case.
7: No. But, but we know there was collusion. Uh, why uh, uh, there's been no indictments, we don't know. But let me say further. We know a number of things. We know what I just said. We know that the president um, um, uh, pressur- uh, uh, pressured the FBI uh, to go easy, to stop investigating. investigation.
4: This much is clear. This has been an utterly colossal media failure, and it reveals how little things have actually changed with the broader press since the Iraq war lies. The overall tone of much of the reporting on this Trump-Russia story has started from the position that the intelligence community was being truthful about Trump and Russia. The reporting then sought to further confirm those assertions. It was confirmation bias to the nth degree. The starting point should be to quote, I have stone, all governments lie. That's the biggest common denominator between the Iraq war media failures and the ones we've seen here with Russiagate. Also, the fact that Trump is a cartoonish, buffoonish villain contributed to an atmosphere where the attitude was that anything Trump was accused of, no matter how insane it sounded, was totally plausible, if not likely, if not certain to have happened. Trump was not supposed to win. It was Hillary Clinton's turn. And tomorrow, let's make history together. I'm Hillary Clinton, and one last time, I approve this message. Instead of unpacking why Clinton lost to this reality TV host and known corrupt crook, a narrative was promoted by the most powerful political and media actors in our society. This was a Russian plot. Putin stole the election. Trump is a Kremlin agent or asset. It resulted in neocons hugging it out with Democratic strategists and CNN and MSNBC hosts. George W. Bush is now our buddy, the the friendly little painter. And isn't it cute how he passes mints to Michelle Obama?
1: So we're together all the time, and I love him to death. He's a wonderful man. He's a funny man. And it was a simple gesture.
4: This whole circus also included scores of former CIA, FBI, NSA, DNI, other alphabet soup veterans, openly waging information warfare on cable news and as unnamed sources in print stories. But we were told this time, this time, the CIA is on our side. The CIA is telling the truth. Robert Mueller is going to save the republic from the orange menace. No, those institutions are and remain what they've always been. And it was a grave media sin to believe otherwise. Every time former CIA director John Brennan appeared on cable news, it looked to me like information warfare, like an actual CIA propaganda campaign, filled with mysterious references about how he has secret knowledge of what Robert Mueller was really going to do.
2: And I don't think Robert Mueller will want to have that dramatic uh, flair of the Ides of March when he is going to be delivering what I think are going to be his indictments, the final indictments, as well as the report that he gives to the attorney general.
4: We've been subjected to more than two years of nonstop Fact-free assertions and wild theories masquerading as fact, masquerading as insightful analysis. We have been repeatedly told that it was the beginning of the end for Trump. And there were tens upon tens of millions of dollars spent on this spectacle. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of congressional time and energy was poured into proving the conspiracy theory that Trump is a secret Bolshevik operative being run by Putin. We're told that President Trump
1: has tried to arrange the summit so that at one point in the summit, it will be him and President Putin in a room with no other Americans. There won't, as far as we understand, maybe not even an American translator there. So if President Putin were hypothetically in some sort of position where he could give orders to an American president behind closed doors, no other American would ever know what those orders
4: were. And this is how major news organizations and powerful connected Democrats and former spies and government agents chose to
5: spend the past two plus years?
7: On Monday, the entire world witnessed President Trump cower in the presence of Putin. I sadly beseech President Trump to apologize to the American people for his disgraceful, dangerous and damaging behavior. With Putin.
4: What is perhaps most remarkable is that while telling us that Trump is the most serious threat to U.S. democracy ever, many Democrats have supported some of the worst aspects of the Trump presidency. They've given him unchecked mass surveillance authorities, supported his bloated war budget, backed his criminal policies on Israel, supported his ongoing attempted coup in Venezuela and on and on. Uh, at some point, uh, I would imagine things will change. But we really haven't done the really
3: tough sanctions yet. We can do the tough sanctions and all options are open. So we may be doing that.
4: But we haven't done the toughest of sanctions, as you know. If the Mueller report says Uh, what William Barr says it does regarding no collusion with Russia, it will amount to a massive gift for Donald Trump. It might actually help Trump win again in 2020. That is unconscionable. And anyone who views Trump as a threat to their existence should be furious at the Democrats the so-called intelligence community, and many of the most high-profile journalists in this country. This is going to be celebrated among the MAGA crowd like it's the second coming of D-Day. Statues are going to be erected. We're going to see Civil War reenactment-style performances about the great hoax against Trump that failed. The Mueller report was great.
3: It could not have been better. It said no obstruction, no collusion.
4: It could not have been better. Who's going to pay a price for putting us all in this position? Who is going to pay a price for aiding and abetting Trump by pushing this conspiracy theory? If history is any indication, probably no one. And that's a devastating commentary on the political class and the broader media in this country. We have a jam-packed show today. Coming up, we're going to be talking to journalist Matt Taibbi, who's been calling bullshit on the broader Trump-Russia narrative from the beginning, as well as Ali Abu Nima of ElectronicIntifada.net about the undeniable rock-solid case that Trump and his inner circle did in fact collude with a foreign power, Israel. Why don't we talk about that? Well, maybe the fact that many top Democrats are right now worshiping at the altar of APAC and support this collusion openly and gleefully.
7: Thank you, APAC. I'm here to pay my respects. Thank you for the honor of joining you this morning. Thank you for your leadership. May God bless Israel.
4: We're also going to take a look at what Steve Bannon has been up to, as well as the foreign election influence scandal you may not have heard of. It involves a member of the Bush family dynasty and China. But first, I wanted to check in with my Intercept colleague, Naomi Klein. She is, of course, the author of The Shock Doctrine, No Logo, This Changes Everything. More recently, she wrote the book No Is Not Enough, about resistance in the Trump era. Naomi Klein, welcome back to Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, What's your reaction to the way that this Russiagate story has been covered?
7: My first reaction was that this is what happens when you have cable news decide to react to the first reality show president by turning themselves into a reality TV show. You know, if there's one thing that we have to give Trump credit for, it's that he understands how to get ratings using a reality TV formula. That is a gift that he has. Immediately after the election, this narrative that he was a a stooge of Russia and that there was this cloak-and-dagger, Tom Clancy-style mystery to uncover was so good for ratings, especially if you plugged it into this reality TV show formula of constantly teasing the reveal after the commercial break, that millions of people got addicted to it. It represents a massive abdication of responsibility to cover stories that were in front of us, that were glaring, that required huge amounts of digging about corruption, about conflicts of interest for this very dangerous presidency. And I just couldn't help imagining what would happen if these news networks practiced real journalism. The responsibility for that failure is something that is really incalculable, like in terms of what it's going to cost us, what we don't know in terms of how this has benefited Trump, who was vulnerable on so many fronts that were right in front of us that we didn't need the conspiracy theories for. If we could have just waited and let the investigation do its work, and then report on the findings. They could have built a stronger case for impeachment just based on corruption.
4: I I was wondering what it would look like if we drew a Venn diagram of journalists who got it right about Iraq and WMDs and journalists who got it right in terms of real serious skepticism to the claims of powerful Democrats, the intelligence community, Hillary Clinton, uh, and these cable news hosts. Because it seems like there are two camps, uh, if you if you break this down in a very generic way, there were the people that hyped and swore that the overarching story is true, and that Mueller is just on the verge of you know, indicting Donald Trump for treason. And then there was another track of this where there were reporters, many of them independent journalists, that were really critically analyzing every incident that took place, every new action, every new court filing, and rejecting through fact the overarching allegation that Trump is a bought-and-paid-for Russian asset. And even Michael Isikoff, who was part of promoting the Steele dossier's findings at the beginning of this story— in the past few months, has really started to take shots at uh, the way that this is panning out and the way that it's being covered, whether it's by BuzzFeed or other large news organizations.
7: Right. And I mean, I think that we have to talk about the business model at play here. You know, what what were the incentives in place that prevented journalists at these cable news outlets and, and other outlets from from exercising real integrity. But the idea that you would invest everything in this one overarching story, that's what I think we have to really probe. And it has come at such a tremendous cost, including the fact that we know that Trump is a bought and paid for asset of the Trump organization. And that there were so many stories that were one day flashes in the pan that deserved to be amplified on cable news. And they just weren't because they didn't fit into this Sexier and more addictive story that was also the story of salvation, right? The story that you were going to get saved by this report off in the distance, that there was just some kind of escape hatch, which meant that you didn't have to do the more labor intensive work of actually trying to speak to the people who voted for Trump and make the case for why he was a complete fraud, why he had betrayed his base. And, you know, there was this moment of sort of mea culpa after the election where people, you know, at News Network said, look, you know, we made a mistake. We were too attracted to the ratings. We couldn't take our eye off Trump. And we handed him the presidency, right? And that was supposed to be some sort of a wake-up call. And far from being a wake-up call, the Business incentives at these news organizations are such that they just doubled down, right? And they decided to throw in with the Trump reality show, who's getting voted off this week, right? Who's being indicted this week? It followed exactly the reality show formula. And it was incredible for ratings in the same way that The Apprentice was incredible for ratings. It just wasn't news.
4: Right. And it occurs to me that the Democrats, after that humiliating defeat, where the chosen one, Hillary Clinton, did not assume power, that they've now added insult to injury by completely mishandling the first two years of this incredibly dangerous administration and handing Trump a an incalculably valuable propaganda asset that he's going to use on the 2020 campaign trail. And I think some of these Democrats, if Trump wins again, really need to be confronted with the role that they played in making a second term for this guy possible.
7: That is what is so scary about this moment. If you wanna talk about it being a stolen election, talk about the electoral college, talk about all of the much more significant systemic rigging that is going on. These are things that are actually in the political realm. Unlike this strategy, which is just so flat out dumb to put all your eggs in the basket of an investigation that you have no control over. It represented this synergy between a corrupt political party that didn't want to look at its own complicity In betraying its base to the extent that people stayed home, did not have enthusiasm for their candidates, and in some cases went over to vote for this dangerous clown Donald Trump, and a news media that could not give up the incredible addiction to Donald Trump ratings. And when we have seen aberrations from this formula, like when we've seen Chris Hayes decide to, you know, go to the border and practice real journalism and show the American people what is happening with family separations, we see the real political change that that can lead to. But it needs to be sustained. It needs to be sustained. It needs to be on the news every single night. It can't be an aberration. Well, once in a while, you go out and practice journalism, and the rest of the time, it's this talking heads reality show. You just can't. In my view, it isn't too late. We are fortunate that there is a new generation of politicians in Congress who, while they believe in holding Trump accountable and putting impeachment on the table, uh, for crimes that we know about that don't require any conspiracy theories that are in plain sight that violate the Constitution because of the emoluments clause and the blatant self-enrichment. You know, More importantly, they're also advancing an alternate political vision um, of Medicare for all, of the Green New Deal, which is making an offer to people, right? Because we always knew that this could not be another election that was just an anti-Trump election. And that underlies as well the logic of you know, investing so 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 much, and
4: Robert Mueller, Naomi Klein. Thanks so much for being with us.
7: Thanks, Jeremy.
4: Naomi Klein is my colleague at The Intercept. She's the author of many books, including most recently, No is Not Enough. The timing of Robert Mueller's delivery of his findings to Attorney General William Barr is quite interesting. As Barr reports that Mueller did not find any evidence of the overarching allegation against Trump regarding Russia, another major foreign influence campaign is being openly celebrated, not just by Trump and Vice President Mike Pence, but by some of the most powerful Democrats in Congress. I'm talking about Israeli collusion. Now, what is clear to anyone with eyes to see is that the U.S. government openly colludes with Israel all the time. It's a bipartisan staple in Washington. And that's what we're seeing this week at AIPAC.
7: We are joined this week by leaders on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the Capitol, because support for Israel in America is bipartisan and bicameral, relentlessly bipartisan. Bipartisan. But more
4: directly relevant to the Trump-Russia scandal is that there is an abundance of evidence that Donald Trump's campaign and some of his closest allies and advisors were actively colluding with Israel to push for war against Iran. There were secret Trump Tower meetings in 2016 with Israeli hackers, Blackwater founder Eric Prince, envoys to the Emirati Royals, there was General Flynn and his conversations with Sergei Kiselyak that amounted to colluding with Russia, but that collusion was in support of Israel's position and an effort to undermine Barack Obama. We're going to get into all of this and more with my next guests. Ali Abu Nima is founder of electronicintifada.net. They have been reporting for months on an Al Jazeera undercover documentary looking at the Israeli lobby and its connections to U.S. organizations and individuals. This film was targeted by the Israeli lobby before it ever came out, and they reportedly pressured the Qatari government not to allow it to be aired. The parts of this film that dealt with the United States and organizations in the US was indeed never broadcast by Al Jazeera. Now, Al Jazeera denies that this pressure played a role in the decision not to air this investigative documentary. Electronic Intifada obtained excerpts of this banned film, posted them on their site, and they have since posted the entire film. Online, Ali Abu Nima joins us now. Welcome back to Intercepted. Thank you very much. And we're also joined by Matt Taibbi, the journalist for Rolling Stone, author of several books, including "I Can't Breathe" about the killing of Eric Garner in Staten Island by the NYPD, and his latest book, which he's publishing in an interesting way, sort of on a rolling basis. It's called "Hate Inc." The latest chapter in that book is called "It's Official: Russia Gate Is This Generation's WMD." Matt Taibbi, welcome back to Intercepted. Thank you, Jeremy. Matt, let's start with you. What we've been witnessing since Barr released his summary of the Mueller investigation is Trump declaring that he's completely vindicated. We have the question of this uh, obstruction and how that's going to be handled, the question of obstruction. But on the specific thing that Trump has most been passionate about, you know, no collusion, no conspiracy, it does seem as though Robert Mueller said, Yeah, actually, Trump was right about this. And then at the same time, you have people continuing to push like theories that there's still some secret indictment or that Mueller still is going to save us. But talk about what you think were the biggest
2: media failures in this whole saga. The big thing, the key moment was the first couple of weeks of January in 2017. There was a sequence of events in which we hear that The intelligence chiefs, Comey, James Clapper, John Brennan, uh, Admiral Rogers, they all meet with both President-elect Trump and Barack Obama. They hand them the Steele report and then almost instantaneously every news agency in Washington, I'm sure you heard The rumors about this almost right away right Mm -hmm. every reporter who is in the business suddenly heard about this thing that happened and as a result of that it gave everybody a hook to write about this piece of private unconfirmed research cnn has learned that the nation's top intelligence officials provided information
3: to
4: president-elect donald trump and to president barack obama last week about claims of Russian efforts to compromise President-elect Trump. The information was provided as part of last week's classified intelligence briefings regarding Russian efforts to undermine the U.S. elections. I've been working on this story.
2: Now, any good investigative reporter, you have to be concerned about, there are some red flags there, like why, why was this effort made to disseminate the information in this particular way? Why did they have to create a news event to get this into our hands? I was highly suspicious of that. One of the reasons was because I knew some people in the Senate Judiciary Committee who had investigated some Wall Street characters for releasing information in a similar way. Uh, And we spoke about that. And they said, this reminds me of of that. The whole rollout of, of steel and the mania that followed to me was the beginning of the entire mess because it was the implied context for years of stories.
4: Ali, one of the things that I think is going to be really interesting if the Mueller report is, you know, made public in whole, which I hope it is, I'm really curious what Mueller has to say in that report if anything about the August 2016 Trump Tower meeting with Israelis, Eric Prince, George Nader, people from the Emirates where they were talking about Iran. You know, all of these people That were at that meeting in one way or another desire regime change in Iran or war with Iran. And that's like almost never talked about anymore. But it really does seem as though some of the most criminal activities or the actual collusion centered around trying to go to war with Iran or support Israel's agenda.
6: I think you're referring to a a meeting that included the CEO of a now defunct Israeli private intelligence firm called Psy Group that has been revealed to have, you know, been engaged in spying on and intimidating Americans who are critical of Israel. And this company had been brought to Donald Trump Jr. that they could help his father win the election.
7: The scope of work the Trump campaign considered included the creation of fake online identities to help the Trump campaign manipulate voter sentiments during the GOP primary against Ted Cruz and ultimately against Trump's general election opponent Hillary Clinton.
6: It's unknown uh, if this was implemented. I I think it's it's known that the Trump campaign did not uh, agree to go along with this, but it's unknown if this was carried out you know, secretly on behalf of Trump. And so yes, it will be very interesting to see if there's anything that uh, about that in the Mueller report. But this, you know, is an example of the kind of activity, secret uh,
4: activity that is also documented in the Al Jazeera film. You're talking about this Al Jazeera documentary about the Israeli lobby and influence uh, campaign in the United States, correct? Correct. This
6: is a documentary, an undercover documentary that was made by Al Jazeera during 2016. It was completed in 2017. And Al Jazeera actually got an undercover reporter hired as an intern at the Israel Project. And he was able to record uh, video and audio from meetings with some top Israel lobbyists and got them to admit on camera or on audio that they were coordinating activities to spy on, smear and sabotage the lawful First Amendment activities of Americans who are critical of Israel and support Palestinian
5: rights. Tony read the Israel Project's annual report, which described TIPS' mission as building an echo chamber for pro-Israel information. That means using the media to amplify and repeat TIPS' messages as well as what the report describes as neutralizing undesired narratives. But
6: what happened with the Al Jazeera film, it's called The Lobby USA, is after it was completed, it was simply buried. Al Jazeera never broadcast it. It turns out what happened was that this very same Israel lobby put immense pressure on Qatar, which of course funds Al Jazeera, to suppress the film. Imagine if this had been a film on supposed Russian interference or Chinese interference or Canadian interference in US politics at this level. Hmm.
4: Matt what we've seen and this isn't new I mean this really uh this really became in vogue post 911 to have former generals and uh former CIA former intelligence people just constantly on the airwaves I mean this has been going on you know all the way back through network news where you would have on your military analyst who was a general or a colonel but then it you know explodes becomes an industry unto itself uh, after 9 11 the Pentagon starts having all these generals and military analysts come in for secret briefings with Donald Rumsfeld and others where they're giving them talking points that they can then use without disclosing that or disclosing that they're on the boards of weapons companies making all the money and they're constantly on the airwaves. But in this particular case, it sort of graduated to a different level where you had people like John Brennan, who was just the CIA director, like right before this all right. happened, uh, James Clapper, a whole slew of CIA people, Je- You know, the generals are still there, but all of these people Who are career spies have spent their entire careers working in the world of America's secrets. And, you know, we're we're doing the things abroad that you will never know about so that your children can, you know, sleep safely. The role, though, that they've played in this, having someone who was the former director of the CIA stating on television that he has information.
2: I th- thought at the time that there was going to be individuals who were going to have uh, issues with the Department of Justice. Yes, and I think we've already seen a number of individuals who have been indicted either have pled guilty uh, or have been convicted now.
4: It felt like we were on the other on the receiving end of a psychological operation. That's what it
2: feels like to watch cable news when these guys are on. It was definitely remarkable and especially the situation with Clapper and Brennan. Because these two people occupied a very important role in this story, and, and they transitioned from being sources to being basically regular guests and analysts on these networks. But also Trump took away their cushy little security
4: clearances, which I supported. You know, I think Trump sometimes does the right thing for the wrong reasons. But they also they became combatants in this story. And they were using the veneer of being independent analysts who had worked in their their whole careers in intelligence. They were combatants in this and they were using their paid positions as contributors to do it.
1: The decision to revoke his security clearance is, in Brennan's words, an attempt to scare and to silence others who might dare to challenge him reference to the president there. With that in mind, the White House has released a list of nine other former and current officials in the intelligence community and the Department of Justice, whose security clearance, we're told, is now under review. One of those people is James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, current CNN national security analyst, and former director Clapper joins us right now. Thank you so much for being with us. And, and
2: the idea of kind of getting into bed with these people and treating them as, you know, sort of on our team is a complete anathema in my mind to what this profession is all about, right? We should always be at arm's length. And one of the things that happened with the story was we completely closed off one whole avenue of inquiry, which was about the origin of Russiagate. Why did it start? You know, there were were hints here and there that the New Yorker did the story about how Robert Hannigan and at the GCHQ in, in Britain, he comes to Brennan with a stream, of what they call a stream of illicit uh, communications. And Brennan is so shocked by this that he delivers it to the FBI, and that's what kickstarts the investigation. They ne- never tell us what those communications are, and they never specify exactly what, what's going on there. And it's all very mysterious, right? Like nobody's really nailed down the origin story. And part of that, I think, is because Brennan and Clapper and all these ex-officials have become significant sources for all the main news organizations. I mean, I happen to know a couple of sort of big front page stories where one or the other was the main source. So none of the reporters are going to cross these people. So yeah, that's a very troubling aspect of this whole thing. Like the lines have been blurred between... Uh, sort of the watchers and the watch at this point. You know, Margaret Sullivan
4: wrote a column in the Washington Post on Monday where she was sort of defending print journalists in particular. Is there a, a distinction worth drawing, though, when we talk about the way cable news covered this? And I'm thinking particularly of you know Rachel Maddow uh, obviously you know, is probably exhibit a in 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 sort of hyping this constantly or you know Glenn says lying every night to millions of uh, of people. Chris Hayes though, you know, had on Jonathan Chate Chate lays out what could be considered the worst case scenario for Trump Russia collusion that Donald Trump has been a Russian intelligence asset since nineteen eighty seven that ridiculous story saying that Trump was yeah. has been a Russian asset since you know nineteen eighty seven. Um, Which he got from a Lyndon LaRouche leaflet published in eight, 1987. Hey, rest in peace, buddy. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. But on that issue, I mean, do you think uh, – I'll start with you, Matt. Is it fair to say, yeah, there was actually a lot of really good reporting on this story and continues there continues to be really good reporting and that cable news is just like on another ridiculous
2: level? See, I don't buy that because if you're artificially narrowing your scope of inquiry – and the, the parameters are Trump is guilty of something. Let's, let's find out what it is, right? Let's not publish any d- information that's dispositive to that. So if we, if we do an investigation and we find that there's no evidence that that there was a link between Trump and this Russian group or that r- Russian group. We'll publish it if we do find it. We won't publish it if we don't find it, right? That, that happened multiple times in the story. But also, again, getting back to the other thing, the whole idea of how did the investigation start? There's other things. Just the whole idea of uh, the story report being in the FISA warrant. The Steel report being in there with the Michael Isakoff story that used Steele as a source. Like, that's to me a serious impropriety. Nobody picked that up except the Washington Post to debunk it. I get what they're saying. They're, they, you know, they weren't as ridiculous and they weren't hyping up the fear factor the same way that the cable stations were. But they had, a, a, you know, a real duty of care here to look at the entire picture and, you know, test everybody's hypotheses about this whole thing. And they didn't do it. They, they, only, they only looked at one sort of one side of the story, one narrow side of the story. And that was a, that was a major, I thought, you know, dereliction of duty itself.
4: Ali, what what about that? What do you think, for instance, of the New York Times coverage of this story from the beginning? I mean, was it responsible? There are some really serious, good reporters that have worked on this story for the New York Times. Is it fair to to sort of say all of the, the major news organizations got this epically wrong? I think it is fair to say that
6: with the caveat that there were occasionally uh, good stories or, or from time to time a journalist who did a reasonable story that you could point to. But the big picture is actually I think the role of the establishment or supposedly respectable media like the New York Times, the Washington Post and NPR has been to launder bullshit and make it look respectable. NPR is one of the worst. They take stuff that is totally unproven or has even been shown to be false, and they assert it time and again as if it's just uncontested fact. So the thing that you will hear almost every day on NPR is that Russia interfered in our election. Russia interfered in our election. And there's never any questioning of what that supposed interference amounted to, who was really behind it. When did it happen? Did it happen before the election or after? And did it have any impact? They they never questioned that. They just asserted. The New York Times is doing these big flow charts showing, you know, how many Russian citizens met with Americans. I mean, just complete garbage, all being used to manipulate people. Max Blumenthal has called it a PSYOP. And that's what I think it is. Psychological warfare to keep telling people there's something there. There's something there. And Well, if the New York Times is saying it, if the Washington Post is saying it, if NPR is saying it, it must be true. What we know is that it was just a few internet troll farms that amounted to nothing, really nothing. Not a single vote was affected. But the big picture narrative that I think millions of people across the country still believe is that Donald Trump is in the White House and Hillary isn't because of uh, Russian election interference? That big picture narrative, which is totally false, is still intact,
2: and that's thanks to the so called establishment media. I totally agree. And I, I just sort of wanted to point out the New York Times did a story last year. And Scott Shane, I think, did this story about New Knowledge, this group that. Turns out they were faking Russian influence operations in Alabama. The New York Times had done a series of stories about, you know, supposed Russian troll activity, getting involved in in things like the Parkland shooting, uh, where one of their sources was new knowledge. Those stories still exist. They're still up in the New York Times. In other words, the Times, even the Times knows they've done a story on these people. They know that there's a factual issue there. And rather than take the logical next step and and ask whoa what what the, what the hell is going on here like what why are people faking Russian troll activity and why are these people being commissioned by the Senate you know why would the Senate still have a relationship with these people after it's been discovered that this went on the whole idea of reporting you know when Hamilton 68 which is this group that was sort of shadowy group that was created by the alliance for Sec- securing democracy See, Glenn has written about this. It's sort of a neocon Democrat alliance, right? And they create this dashboard that supposedly tells us in real time what Russian trolls want us to, you know, be, be freaking out about. Well, if you call them up, they won't. They won't tell you what their methodology is. They won't tell you what sites they're monitoring exactly, right? Or how or how they're doing their computations. And yet. They became the source for front page stories on on these major newspapers of record. And the aim of these stories was exactly what Ali was talking about. It was to to legitimize the most insane, the most crazy parts of the, the manias that went on during this period. We've had Robert Mueller portrayed, particularly by
4: Democrats and liberal media, as this man of impeccable character. And he's just like completely ruined their Christmas by uh, apparently saying there was no collusion, but the long-term consequences of the way that the broader intelligence community, the FBI, Robert Mueller, have sort of been lionized or placed on a pedestal by many, many political actors in our society.
6: Well, the long-term consequences of that and this whole uh, Russiagate diversion was that we've lost two-plus years to build a real principled opposition to Trump. Trump should be opposed for the correct reasons, not because of totally bogus claims that he's a Russian puppet. Uh, Someone else commented about this, that all that energy that we saw in the first days of the Trump administration when thousands of people spontaneously went to the airports— to protest the Muslim ban and I was among them. I was uh, at home in bed and I was seeing on Twitter people are gathering at O'Hare Airport and I, I got up, got out of bed and drove to O'Hare Airport to be with people and it was incredible. <laughs> That was happening across the country. People were hungry to be motivated, to be galvanized, to be given a mission, uh, a principled mission, to fight for the country they wanted to live in. And instead, the democratic leadership took them on this wild goose chase and how do you get back from that now, as as we head into the twenty twenty election, where the Democrats seem incapable of learning? At least I'm talking about the leadership and the establishment and where the money comes from. Because the alternative to this failed approach would be to give people real policies to say healthcare for all, housing, paying jobs, a real progressive agenda that meets people's needs. But of course, the Democrats can't and won't do that, because that's not where the money is for them. And so they retreat into this flag-waving nationalism to out-Republican the Republicans. So
4: I, I wish I could be more optimistic. Ali Abunima, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Matt Taibbi, thanks for being here. Thank you. Matt Taibbi is a journalist with Rolling Stone. His latest book, which is being published on a rolling basis, is called Hate Inc., like Hate Incorporated. The latest chapter is titled It's Official, Russiagate is This Generation's WMD. And Ali Abu Nima, he's co-founder of the Electronic Intifada, that's an independent online news publication focusing on Palestine. He's also the author of The Battle for Justice in Palestine and One Country, a bold proposal to end the Israeli-Palestinian impasse. Earlier this month, the Federal Election Commission issued a historic fine and cited The Intercept's 2016 investigative series called Foreign Influence. That series was written by John Schwartz and Lee Fang, and through dogged reporting, they managed to expose a major violation of campaign finance law's strict prohibition against foreign money being used in U.S. federal elections. Their reporting was so critical that the FEC, which rarely catches these sorts of violations, actually punished both the Chinese-owned company which donated the money and the Super PAC which received it, finding them a combined total of $940,000. Before Citizens United in 2010, corporations couldn't spend money to directly advocate for federal candidates. After Citizens United and related court decisions, corporations that were formed in the U.S., even ones that are completely owned and controlled by foreigners, could send money to super PACs in unlimited amounts. Enter Jeb Bush in 2016. That's right, Jeb. I think the next president needs to be a lot quieter, but send a signal that we're prepared to act in the national security interests
2: of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap.
4: Jeb's sad campaign was backed by a super PAC called Right to Rise USA. They received over a million dollars in donations from a California corporation called American Pacific International Capital, or APIC. That company, APIC, was controlled completely by two Chinese citizens living in Singapore. So remember, it's illegal for foreign nationals to contribute money in connection to U.S. elections, but APIC and Jeb Bush's Right to Rise USA tried to get away with using the loophole created by Citizens United. Because APIC was incorporated in California, it was technically not foreign. And the financial contribution would have been fine if they had not egregiously violated one part of the law still on the books. That part of the law limits this sort of foreign influence. When foreign-owned corporations make political donations, only U.S. citizens are supposed to make the decision. My colleagues at The Intercept, along with reporter Elaine Yu in Hong Kong, got Gordon Tong, the Chinese national at the head of APIC, to admit that he helped make the decision to donate to Jeb Bush. And that was very illegal. Here is The Intercept's John Schwartz to walk us through this
5: bizarre tale. So in 2010, the Supreme Court famously decides in Citizens United— That U.S. campaign finance law was wrong. Before Citizens United, you could only contribute money for U.S. political campaigns in limited amounts. It had to come from individual citizens. After Citizens United, corporations, unions could put unlimited amounts of money. It could go to super PACs, for instance, and as long as they were theoretically not coordinating with individual candidates, they could take this unlimited amount of money and then spend it however they wanted, promoting anything. Very soon after the Citizens United decision in 2010 was Obama's State of the Union address. And in it, he said... With all due deference to separation of powers... Last week, the Supreme Court reversed
4: a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections.
5: What is the significance of that? If you look at the law, what it says is this. Foreign nationals are forbidden from putting money into U.S. elections. A foreign national is a foreign individual, it's a foreign government, and it's a foreign corporation— What happens if there is a U.S. corporation that is a wholly owned subsidiary of a foreign corporation? Well, according to U.S. law, that corporation counts as a U.S. national, meaning that a completely foreign owned corporation could now, post Citizens United, put as much money as they wanted into U.S. politics.
4: I don't think American elections should be bankrolled by America's most powerful interests or worse, by foreign entities. They should be decided by the American people. And I'd urge Democrats and Republicans to pass a bill that helps correct some of these
5: problems. So six years later, Ellen Weintraub, then on the Federal Election Commission, uh, now the chairman of the FEC, wrote an op-ed for The New York Times about this issue, about Are foreign-owned corporations going to be able to spend without limit in U.S. elections? Lee Fong and I thought this was an interesting question. We decided to look into it, see what corporations were giving money to U.S. super PACs, and find out whether there was foreign ownership of any of them. And within 10 minutes of trying to find this out, we saw something that looked tremendously suspicious, which was a corporation called... American Pacific International Capital, located in San Francisco. Just a little bit of Googling found information that suggested that this was, in fact, 100% foreign-owned, and it had given $1.3 million to the Right to Rise USA Super PAC, which was supporting Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential candidacy.
4: We're 17 months from the time for choosing... The stakes for America's future are about as great as they come. Our prosperity and our security are in the balance. So is opportunity in this nation where every life matters and everyone has the right to rise.
5: What we found out after speaking to Charlie Spies, who was the treasurer of Right to Rise USA and one of the most prominent campaign finance lawyers in the United States was that Spees had actually written a memo explaining step-by-step step how you could put foreign money into U.S. elections and have it be legal. We also spoke to Gordon Tong, who was the Chinese businessman behind APIC. And to our great shock, he essentially unknowingly Confessed to having broken US campaign finance law. There are still some remaining weak prohibitions that you should be able to abide by that really can't be easily enforced, that will only create problems for you if reporters call you and you accidentally confess.
0: Uh, (laughs) If Gordon
5: Tong had just kept his mouth shut, if he hadn't told us, oh, yes, you know, I said this seems like a good idea to me, then they would have been fine. They would have been able to, as Obama said, spend without limit in U.S. elections. And there really should not have been any legal consequences. They just got sloppy. What's crucial here is, is this fact. There's sort of the law as written and the law as it is possible to be enforced. The law as written says, yes, foreign-owned corporations can participate now in U.S. elections, but foreign nationals can't participate in the decision-making in terms of putting the money into the U.S. electoral process. Now, we were expecting that when this article came out, it would make huge news, you know, Foreign interference in U.S. elections. It's proven now. Obama called it. Here it is. Essentially nothing happened. No one paid any attention. It was the summer of 2016. It was around the time of the U.S. Democratic and Republican conventions. What we thought was an enormous story went nowhere. Now, what happened then was the Campaign Legal Center, which is sort of uh, an election law watchdog in Washington, picked up our article, used the information in it to say, hey, this seems like a clear violation of very significant U.S. campaign finance law. They filed a complaint with the FEC, and then no one heard anything for two and a half years. The FEC generally does not enforce U.S. campaign finance law. The Republican Party, pretty much as policy now, believes that campaign finance law is illegitimate, and they simply, at the FEC, block it from being enforced. So we thought nothing was going to happen. And then, to our surprise, something did.
1: You don't hear news like this all that often. You hardly ever hear about it on this scale. But a super PAC from the 2016 campaign, a super PAC that supported Jeb Bush for president, has just been hit by federal officials with a huge fine for accepting donations from foreigners.
5: It became public that the FEC was issuing the third largest fine in its history, the largest fine since Citizens United, almost $1 million. Both APIC, the foreign-owned corporation, and Right to Rise— the Jeb Bush super PAC had to pay fines. Now, what it suggests is not just the fact that this was going on, that this happened for sure in 2016, but that with people who are more careful, it is probably going on in ways that can't be detected. The reality is Foreign countries, foreign corporations, foreign individuals, they have very, very good reasons to try to influence U.S. politics. If I were a foreigner, I would try to influence U.S. politics. Of course you have to. We're the most powerful country on Earth. You would be a fool not to try to do this. And as I say, people who are more sophisticated about it should be able to pull this off without detection. So... What does this mean right now? What it means is that post-Citizens United, this absolutely can not happen. It means that we don't know what is happening. I would also encourage people to think about the fact that there is foreign influence on U.S. politics in all kinds of ways that was already legal before Citizens United. There's tons of money that flows into think tanks in Washington. There's tons of money that flows into lobbying organizations in Washington in ways that are perfectly legal, but involve foreign influence on US politics. I hope that other reporters will look at this and and realize that this was just out there in the open for anybody to find like this information is probably there for other corporations. We just don't know it yet. And this is actually something that anybody can do. Like anybody can go look through the campaign finance filings. They're on the FEC's website. They're at the Center for Responsive Politics. If you are interested in this issue, even if you're not a journalist, go comb through this and send it to reporters. I guarantee you that they'll be interested to hear about anything you find.
4: That was my colleague at The Intercept, John Schwartz. You can check out that series at TheIntercept.com. It was called Foreign Influence. John spoke to our assistant producer, Elise Swain.
3: I'm not a globalist. I'm a nationalist. And they say, oh, that's so terrible. Terrible. I'm proud of this country, and I call that nationalism. I call it being a nationalist. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. National. Nothing
4: Whether or not Donald Trump understands the meaning or historical significance of the words that he uses, like nationalist or globalist, that's debatable. For Trump, the positive response he receives from his base when evoking this language supersedes any need to fully comprehend any definitions. And while Trump is fully capable of constructing his own dog whistles about African-Americans, about women, about immigrants, about Muslims, this specific kind of weaponization of words like nationalist or globalist did not appear a priori in his really big, big boy brain. Donald Trump's very, very large brain. It's most likely that Trump co-opted these phrases from his former advisor, Steve Bannon, whose entire existence as a filmmaker is that of a revisionist historian, assembling words and signifiers and manipulating them toward his own ideological ends. If you're curious about Bannon's grotesque, nonsensical documentaries, that word in bold air quotes, I encourage you to watch the Field of Vision film, American Carnage, that explores Bannon's filmography.
3: I believe the world, and particularly the the Judeo-Christian West, uh, is in a crisis.
4: Well, the camera has recently been turned toward Bannon in the form of a new cinema verite-style documentary from the director Alison Clayman, That film is called The Brink, and it follows Steve Bannon for an entire year as he peddles his idea of an organized transnational so-called populist movement to various right-wing leaders throughout Europe and the United States.
3: Every populist party or nationalist party that looks viable, right? I, I'm, I'm trying to help. This is what I've done for 40 years. This is no different than in the 1980s when I was at Goldman Sachs sitting down with entrepreneurs and tech companies or media companies or in the 90s when I had my own firm. It's, it's, it's literally just a different conference room, right? It's the same thing.
4: But again, Bannon actually understands the potency of language. At many points in the film, it seems like Bannon's movement is little more than a rebranding tour for white supremacy under the guise of fighting for economic equality. To discuss this intimate look into the life of Steve Bannon, I'm joined now by the director of the film The Brink, Allison Klayman. Allison, welcome to Intercepted.
8: Thank you so much.
4: What was your impression of Steve Bannon before you got involved with this crazy ride?
8: I mean, my impression really was probably the most simplistic based on a a media diet in America. You know, he's Darth Vader. He's kind of physically disgusting. His ideas are disgusting. You know, when I first met him, September 2017, was a few weeks before we ended up starting filming, I didn't know who was going to walk in the door and what he was like, and it was a little bit like a casting session, too. I didn't know if he could carry a movie, I mean, let alone what was going to happen in this first year out of the White House for him. But when he walked in the room, it was, I mean, the person you see in the film, and he was like charismatic, couldn't stop talking. And I feel like in 10 seconds, I was like, oh, this guy's gonna say some shit.
4: You know, it's uh, what's one of the things in the big picture that really struck me about the film is that Bannon, the way he seems to conduct himself with people, he's he comes off as an affable guy who has a self deprecating sense of humor. Did you get a sense from spending this year following him? I mean, is he a likable guy? On a personal level. I mean, his ideas are reprehensible to me, but like he comes off as like, yeah, you know, he gets it. He knows you think he's a fascist, but that's okay.
8: Like all the things you just said, I agree. That doesn't necessarily mean that I was personally charmed, but I could see that he was charming. I think self-deprecating humor also kind of shows that you have some level of self-awareness. I thought what struck me the whole year was this real duality of like having self-awareness and having these moments also where I felt like he was revealing himself and must not be aware of it as he's doing it. But that instinct of his. He's really good at like retail politics and he's trying to charm people, especially journalists. And I feel like it was important to show not only because that's what I found and I'm not making propaganda and like a slanted portrait, but that's one of the tools in his toolkit for getting where he is. And I think if you only imagine him as this sort of, you know, creature of the night, like you're missing the point of how he's doing what he's doing.
4: One of the scenes, uh, you have a Guardian journalist who's there, and you have a handful of European political allies of Bannon's as he starts to spread the movement in, um, in Europe. And there's a very pointed exchange that you captured where the Guardian journalist and Bannon are standing at the door, the journalist is leaving, and Bannon is essentially trying to get him to admit this isn't really fascist.
3: You can't possibly believe those are dog whistles. Hmm? You can't possibly believe those are dog whistles. Do you know, I think you... Um, I genuinely don't think you could not believe that they are.
5: Oh, my God. God. Yeah. Come on.
3: Dude. I, and I, I don't sort of think it's a trivial sort of jokey thing. And I, you do the sort of smirk, and it's sort of uncomfortable for me, because it's, uh-huh. it's serious.
2: Oh, I did, but I think, I think... It's a
3: serious, I think, offensive dog whistle. Oh, my. So I, I, I think... You know it's Steve. No, I yeah. think you're totally wrong on that. You but, know you're wrong. But we can talk about it.
8: Bannon has a persona. You know, he gets what the game is right um, when he's going toe-to-toe with paul lewis of the guardian who came very prepared
1: some of the people you're doing business with here in
3: europe are you know, far right sometimes quite extreme sometimes we've got links to like orban or or her. like philippe de winter who you had a meeting with in in london no no he just came to he just came to, that was a general dinner but does it right. concern you that that Philippe de Winter is like commemorated former SS collaborators? That no, 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 no. To... I said that kind of stuff is not going to be tolerated in the, in the movement. We were very upfront with that. Right. So he just came to he just came to the dinner. That was a general dinner. We had, you know, a number of people there.
8: And so I think afterwards Bannon's trying to do what he always does, which is sort of be like, yuck, yuck, you know, that was like good fun, right? You know, like, as if just as much as he is doing it for show, the journalist must be doing it for show too. And Paul kind of stuck to his guns and didn't take off the interview mask and said, you try to make this a joke and you smirk and it makes me very uncomfortable. I think this is very serious stuff. Do
4: you see him as an ideologically driven person?
8: I think he does have ideologies that shape his worldview. I think it's not necessarily what's the substance of his stump speech, right? I don't think his ideology is being for the little guy and trying to change the global order when it comes to money. I think he only cares about the global order when it comes to movement of people. This
3: agenda is what America needs now, is what America needs to rebuild its future. Now, what do I mean by this agenda? We talk about economic nationalism. And what they're trying to do is smear the Trump, the the Trump deplorables, and that was Hillary Clinton's speech. She was smearing them as nativist and racist, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. Economic nationalism is what binds us together. It doesn't matter what your race is, or what your religion is, or what your gender is, or what your sexual preference is. Nobody cares about. You're a citizen of the United States of America. That's what he cares about.
8: When you see who he works with, when you see the policies that he actually has ever coherently articulated or even successfully passed, for example, when he's in the White House, the Muslim travel ban being basically his only accomplishment, it all comes down to anti-Islam, anti-immigrant. He uses a lot of language that is right out of the New Zealand shooter's manifesto, but, you know, that kind of white nationalist ideology. And I personally believe that that is part of his worldview, no question, because you get him in a room with other leaders and ostensibly he's trying to frame everything as, quote, economic nationalism, but who talks about birth rates? So I, I think he has a worldview but whether like, what he's doing every day is about being ideologically driven and ideas driven versus just loving strategy, loving power, loving fame and notoriety, I think that that is as much what motivates him.
4: Uh, let's talk about the first scene, the opening scene of the the film, where you are right there with Steve Bannon talking about his recent visit to Auschwitz and, and Birkenau. What was going on there? And explain what Steve Bannon was talking about.
8: So he launches into a discussion of a movie he made in 2017.
4: I had a great film,
3: the Phil Robertson movie. Maybe my craziest film. What was the title of it? Torchbearer. Torch, the Torchbearer or Torchbearer? The Torchbearer. No, Torchbearer. Torchbearer. Torchbearers. Torchbearers. Bearer.
8: Torch torch bear, torch so he made this movie with Phil Robertson, and he talks about how they traveled all over. They went to Rome or Athens. Uh, he's listing all these places, and he says uh, Auschwitz, Birkenau.
3: Auschwitz, Birkenau. France. My shit in Auschwitz rocked.
8: That is the moment where my eyes got big because I was like what? What, like, what? what is he talking about? My grandparents are Holocaust survivors. I was obsessed with the question of, like, banality of evil. I mean, at first as a kid, I was obsessed with how scary it would be to be a victim. But then I think as I got older, I started to think, how could a society become this way? You know, how, what were the individual and societal conditions that led to the Holocaust?
3: We leave for Birkenau, right? And this gets to the punchline of the story. I look around. And I turned the cure and I go, man, I said, this is the most haunting place I think I've ever been. I just, it's something about this. This is actually the feeling I thought I was going to feel in Auschwitz. And he goes, oh, everybody says that. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. He says, maybe I didn't explain it. He said, Auschwitz was a Polish Calvary college. The Germans just requisitioned it immediately. And that was like the beta site test. This was made from scratch.
8: And again, he's not denying the Holocaust, He's not saying it's a good thing, which is also fun to put in the front of the movie, because I think it plays with audience expectations, too, because you're like, where is he going with this? Maybe you expect that he's going to say something more directly, virulently anti-Semitic or, you know, like that. But he, what he does is he marvels at the way that he found Birkenau much more chilling, and it's because that was the camp that was built from scratch based on what they learned at Auschwitz.
3: German industrial design. He says, the whole thing's perfect. I'm walking around and go, oh, my God. It's precision engineering to the nth degree by Mercedes and Krupp and Hugo Boss. and all. It is a institutionalized industrial compound for mass murder.
8: I was, like, cold inside because I, I just felt like Again, there was a lot of self-awareness in that story that he was telling, him knowing who I was and probably liking to provoke. He loves also just telling, he thinks, you know, he's like getting into telling the story. You see how engaging and you see his physicality as he's telling the story. But I was like, wow, there's something going on here that he doesn't know, which is like, he is really laying out the thematic thesis for me. And this is crazy because I didn't lead him there. I didn't ask him to talk about you know Auschwitz it, it it came completely naturally
3: this thing was so planned and so engineered down to perfection you could see the conference meetings you can see all the cups of coffee and all the meetings and all the argument there were people that actually sat and thought through this whole thing and totally detached themselves from you know the moral horror of it that's when you realize oh my god humans can actually do this humans that are not devils right? But humans that are just humans.
4: You know, I also and you captured so many really fascinating moments uh, about this guy. Uh, He's on a plane and it's um, he's sitting next to Sam Nunberg and Sam Nunberg makes reference to the idea that he and Trump became friends a long time ago and Bannon says, (laughs) you know, "Uh uh-uh. No, you know.
3: When you're at that level, you don't you don't have friends among grundoons. That's a problem. Guys like you and Corey and stoned, you all think you're buddies with him. You're not. And you're not either? Not what? Friend of Trump? No. The pressure he's under, he doesn't need. People crowding in this space.
4: Do you think Bannon really believes that? And were his feelings hurt when Trump dumped him and started calling him Sloppy Steve?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think that Bannon likes to play off that nothing gets at him. But when you watch the movie, is that what you think? Do you think he's someone who really moves through the world and nothing phases him?
4: I don't get that sense. That's why I genuinely, I wouldn't say I was on the edge of my seat, but I was genuinely asking when you asked that question, like, how is he going to answer this? Because I could have seen Bannon saying oh yeah, Trump and I will always be friends. But instead it was just like, uh-uh, this is just this is business, never personal kind of an attitude.
8: And another thing too is like, unfortunately that I hope comes through in the film or I at least want to say like, you know, that also makes it seem like it's like Bannon is the extreme or the fringe versus like a mainstream Republican viewpoint or a centrist viewpoint. And I really feel like it's important to recognize that like Bannon is the mainstream of the Republican Party. And that whole year, I mean, he is in touch with Senate leadership while Obviously, while Jeff Sessions is in the cabinet, he was definitely in touch with him. He'd be on the phone with Lindsey Graham. He'd be on the phone, I mean, with many members of the administration once they left. But still, there was it was clear that there was a lot of conversation. And so in that same way, whether or not all these people are friends, I think that goes back, sorry, to the question you had posed about him and Trump. I mean, like, he was very careful, I thought, the whole year that I was following him to never... Bad mouth Trump, mm-hmm. um, but I he also wasn't playing like they were buddies as as like the answer to that question, and I did feel like it was about you know what was brilliant about Trump was just what he was able to do media wise and connecting to people, and I I didn't feel like. It wasn't like he went on and on about uh, any other aspect of him, if that makes sense.
4: One, it was it was a very brief moment in the film, but one of the moments that I personally found most interesting was uh, Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, brother of Betsy DeVos, a major funder of Trump's election campaign, and a guy who's constantly pitching ideas even as we speak to the Trump administration. What's the relationship between Bannon and Eric Prince that you observed?
8: They are by my observation, like, close in a buddy sense. Like, that moment is, like, them joking. It's actually not really one of substance, but it was kind of to show the chumminess.
3: It's a beautiful thing. My um, I love fucker with her like this. Uh, well, nothing like... Wait a minute, this is on camera, so I'll be careful.
8: Eric Prince, I think, is very interested in... I mean, and it's been reported, you know, that he wants Trump to hire him and his, his mercenaries to, war war yeah. to to do that. I also would challenge Bannon, you know, Bannon's very hawkish on China. And I was like, how do you square this relationship with Eric Prince, considering he is training the, you know, CCP's army? And eventually I got him to the point he said, I, I, I mean, I disagree with Eric on that.
4: What you're saying here is actually really, I think, politically important for people to understand right now that you... First of all, Steve Bannon and Eric Prince go way back. They're also connected through the the Mercers. When Eric Prince did start publicly speaking, uh, when Obama was in power, Prince was living in Abu Dhabi and was calling into Bannon's radio show. And they did this series of radio interviews.
5: A Phoenix like program. Okay. Remember the Phoenix program was a root canal done. You mean Phoenix the this is the Phoenix
3: program? This is the Phoenix. Hang this is the Phoenix program in Vietnam. It was a vicious, but very effective kill capture program in
5: Vietnam that destroyed the Viet Cong as a military force. That's what needs to be done to the funders of Islamic terror. And that would be even the.
4: But if you take that, what you're just mentioning now about Eric Prince, and then you look at Miles Kwok 2014, 2015, Miles Kwok leaves China. He's an extremely wealthy individual. But explain who he is and what he's doing around Steve Bannon.
8: Bannon, you know, went to kiss the ring with Miles Kwok very, very regularly. When he would come through town to New York, often Quack was the first person he would go see. He is a billionaire who used to be very connected in the CCP. Uh, he, Chinese ma- Communist yeah, Party. Yeah, he's... Uh, He made his money as a developer, and there are many charges out against him for fraud and other things. And so he does not return to Beijing or to China, and he's in the U.S. He owns a very luxurious apartment overlooking Central Park. The U.S. does not have an extradition relationship with China. What Bannon told me was that once Trump was elected, there were so many prominent American business people and bankers, people who do lots of business in China, who were coming to Bannon and to the administration asking as a favor so that they would look good to have Kwok extradited to China because that was this is what Bannon says you know and that this really impressed him that you know clearly this guy must be such a big deal because all these you know business people bankers this, this is what they want to do to look good for their you know Chinese partners and so that's what when Bannon said that Kwok you know really came on his radar um, in 2016 the amount of time that he was spending with him, and in particular, you know, after his relationship with the Mercers ended, but, you know, this was all after.
4: And yet you say to Bannon, uh, is Miles Kwok supporting this this effort financially? And Bannon says, Did who? Miles. What do you mean support? Like
8: financially?
4: Oh, no, no, no. I'm taking your money. <laughs> But I don't want to spoil the part of the ending here. Right now, Bannon is the manager of a project that is uh, funded to the tune of a hundred million dollars by Miles Quack.
8: Yeah, exactly. And not every shot of Bannon on a private plane is Miles Quack's plane, but some of them are.
4: We meet Nigel Farage in your film, where he and Bannon are having this conversation, and Bannon is sort of pitching him the idea that Bannon can fund this project that has at its as its goal kind of the spread of economic nationalist populist movements.
3: If you're interested, what I'd like to do is set up something, and we'll, I'll fund it somehow, that I think, and I think you're the perfect guy, we help knit together this populist nationalist movement throughout the world. Because guys in Egypt are coming to me, the Modi's guys in India, Duterte, you know, and, and we get Orban and, and even thing, and we're somehow some sort of convening authority.
4: Bannon views that as like this new coalition of the willing, you know, whatevers. but um, explain what the idea of the movement is and what Bannon's sort of goal was at the time as you as you witnessed it.
8: Yeah, and I think there's sort of the movement, capital T, capital M. And then there's also just the movement meaning, you know, something that I do think Bannon is notable for is this articulation of a globally and internationally connected, far right, even when he's like failing to do some of the specific things that he maybe sets out to do in this film, like which will be that capital T, capital M specific organization called the movement. But I still think that there's something to be wary of when there's this, again, an articulation of this idea, because I think that words and ideas do matter. Um, What, What is that idea? That nationalism doesn't just mean, you know, countries acting alone and that these different countries frankly with most of them with authoritarian or you know leaders or fascist parties on the rise that the vision of nationalism is something that can cross borders
4: Yeah. The film at one point weaves this story together where you have the rhetoric that Steve Bannon is using and that people around Steve Bannon are using and the specific issues that they really want to kind of fan the flames of anger. And they openly embrace this in your film. It's really interesting. And then Cesar Sayoc's plots are uncovered. And then you have the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue massacre. Is Bannon responsible for those things in your view in any way?
8: Is he happy that those things happened? Uh, You know, I don't really think so. Does he like, is he communicating with any of those specific perpetrators? No, but 100% he should be held responsible. Uh, I mean, again, not as the solitary source of the responsibility. And again, because you see, that is something that I think he really, I don't give him a pass and I don't, find it useful to just, you know, interview him and ask him what he thinks about it and let that be the answer. Because I think you have to look at the words, deeds, actions. And I don't buy that. I just don't buy that. And I think he should be held responsible.
4: Hmm. Well, there's a lot more that I I would have liked to ask you about, but I really hope people watch this film. I think it gives you really a creepy, eerie, but accurate sense of a part of this guy that you never really see in the print press about him or in, in interviews that he does. So, I congratulate you on being able to capture all of this with this guy. Alison Klayman, thank you so much. Thank you. Alison Klayman is the director of The Brink. She made her directorial debut with her film Wei Wei Never Sorry. That's about the Chinese artist and dissident. Her other films include The Hundred Years Show, Take Your Pills, and the upcoming short Flower Punk about the Japanese artist Azuma Makoto. And that does it for this week's show. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, you can log on to theintercept.com slash join. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Leetal Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription is done by Nuria Marquez Martinez. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week...